Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I remember night skies. What's night? Night. Night was a quiet time. When the earth went to sleep, it felt like a cool hand. Just brushed past tired eyes. Strange how the night moves. You have to listen to me now. Jay Talking, Bradley Jay, WBZ News Radio 1030. WBZ, hey, how you doing? I'm back. You are Jay Talking. We're live midnight to five. And this guest that we have with us is a big deal for me because I've been in this market, this area for years and years and years. I dare I say decades. Heard all about her. Never really had a substantive conversation. Really just kind of passed in the night. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Donna Halper, who is a... Well, a broadcaster, a journalist, a professor, a one of the, the biggest collectors of broadcast memorabilia. He's got books on broadcast history. Knows more about BZ than I do. Knows more about every station I worked at than I do. Ladies and gentlemen, Donna Halper, how are you? Well, you know, I after that introduction, I feel like I should like walk on water or something like that. But, uh, you know, if I'm that great, why aren't I rich? That's what I want to know. Well... You turned your attention towards stuff that didn't get you rich. Well, I do a lot of charity work, but hey. you know something? You're rich. You just don't have I, a lot I of money. You, can I tell you something? Yeah. Money is one thing, but health is the best. And I hope that all of our listeners had a healthy and happy holiday, whatever they were celebrating and whoever they were celebrating it with. It's tough to... Nowhere to start with you because you have so many things going on simultaneously. So I guess I'll take one at a time and talk about your your journey, your arc as a writer and as a as a broadcaster, and then there are some areas where they intersect. So you write. You've I written do. a long I time. Do. I have. Which came first, broadcast or writing? Well, probably writing. Um, when I was a kid, I was a very lonely kid. Um, today they would say I was bullied, but they didn't even have that kind of vocabulary back then. Uh, I was the only Jewish kid in my neighborhood. I wanted a career at a time than when girls weren't supposed to want a career. I mean, I was just, I was different. And, uh, you know, so I got mocked, I got bullied, I got beat up a couple of times, blah, blah, blah. And my catharsis was writing. I wrote songs, I wrote poems, I just started writing and it made me feel better. And the other thing that made me feel better was radio. And I still say to this day, radio saved my life, okay? Uh, the DJs, for me, they were like friends. I felt like they were talking right to me. My, I've said on many occasions, my cultural hero was a guy named Arnie Ginsberg. And I loved him dearly because, A, he kept his name at a time when everybody had the same non, you know, just the most bland-sounding names. And Arnie Ginsberg was Arnie Ginsberg, and there you were. And he also had a very high, squeaky voice, which all the DJs had big, deep voices. And Arnie didn't care. Arnie was just Arnie, and he was happy being Arnie. And that was so inspiring for me because as someone who was different— 
it was so nice to see someone who was also different being successful. So well, the intersection there is, yeah, you know, I was writing, but I also said, wow, what I'd really like to do is be on the radio. And that started that whole journey. What was your neighborhood that you grew up in? Rosalindale. Oh, so I was born. Local. I was born in Dorchester. Um, back in the day when I was growing up, if you were Jewish and you lived in Boston, um, you probably lived in either Mattapan, Dorchester, or Roxbury. The neighborhoods were starting to change. My parents wanted to have a family, and they're really, you know, in their small, the place they were living in Dorchester, there was really no room. So they wanted to move to the suburbs, and they ended up in Rosalindale, where we went from being you know, in a Jewish neighborhood to, oh, hello, I'm the only Jew in the entire city. And so that was, that was different. So, uh, you know, yeah. In the writing thread, you wrote uh, your doctoral thesis on how radio changed society. Absolutely. Um, How did it? Well, first of all, radio, and a lot of people take radio for granted today, and they shouldn't, because radio is a life changing mass medium. Radio speaks to people in an intimate way, in a way that television does not. And I've got nothing against TV. I got friends in TV, etc. But for radio, it's like you're eavesdropping on the entire world. There are people listening to us tonight from all over the place. We don't even know where they are, but they're hearing our voices and we can be friends to them. So that's one thing. Another thing radio did was it was the first mass medium that took you to an event in real time. That had never happened before. Radio also did some interesting things like helping to equalize the sexes, like women had just gotten the vote when radio came along, okay? And back then, women were talked about, but they had no agency. They couldn't do the talking. When radio came along, women could get shows. Now, agreed, there was a lot of prejudice with regard to women being announcers. But women could be entertainers. Women could host a, quote, women's program. Some women were commentators. And there were a few women that even owned stations. It brought them out of the home and into the public sphere in a way that had never been possible before. The same for people of color. America's segregated. I'm Bessie Smith. I'm a black blues singer, and there's an awful lot of cities where they don't want me. I cannot play. But on the radio, my songs are being heard all over the United States because back then radio is just AM. Just like to this day, WBZ can be heard in like 38 states. AM stations at night carried for miles. So there's Bessie Smith, for example, playing her blues song on a station in one city, and she's being heard all over the United States, including in cities where she would never have been allowed to play. So radio did that kind of stuff and more. Was there an event that really made it clear how valuable it was to have something that could bring it to you in real time? A war, uh, an assassination? Interestingly enough, it was the simple little stuff, like baseball. WBZ, as you may or may not know, was the first station in Boston to broadcast a Boston baseball game. They didn't broadcast the Red Sox. That wasn't until like 1926. But in 1925, WBZ broadcast the Boston Braves. Now, your John or Jane average citizen 
You can't afford to get time off to go to a ball game. Are you kidding me? You can't afford the seats. You can't afford to get there. And you certainly can't afford to take the time away from whatever else you were doing. But with radio, you were there. You're hearing the play-by-play. You're hearing interviews with the players. WBZ was the first station to broadcast hockey live. The same thing. The little events. I mean, yeah, sure, eventually the war, the the explosion of the Hindenburg, you know, the assassination of this one or that one, the death of the president. But in the beginning, it was all just people feeling like, wow, now I'm the same as the rich people. I could never afford to go to a concert before, but now the concert's coming to me. I can sit in my living room and I can hear this great music by these great performers right in my home. I can hear a ball game. This to us, again, we take it for granted. We shouldn't. It was life-changing for the average person. The song says video killed the radio star. They said social media would kill radio. Oh, people have been saying that radio was going to die since 1927. I'm hearing it's getting stronger, actually, for some reason. Absolutely. See... I mentioned to you when we were off air, I'm a big fan of a media theorist named Neil Postman. He wrote a wonderful book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, Television in the Age of Show Business. And Neil Postman said, a new medium does not erase all the media that came before it, but it does change them. So look at radio. Before the internet came along, radio had to compete with television. Okay, fine. Top 40 came along. Urban came along. Country came along. All these new formats so that they could get the young people listening. Album rock, WBCN, et cetera, et cetera. Every city had stations that were aimed at the younger listeners. Then the internet comes along. Oh, my God, that's supposed to kill radio. What does radio do? They open up web pages. They start doing podcasting. They start having interactive, you know, how would you like to vote on which song we play? You know, the number one song that used to be you had to call in. Now you can go online. A lot of the personalities started having Twitter feeds. They started having Instagram accounts. Suddenly it becomes more personal where new media and old media are intersecting and everybody wins. People are listening to us tonight. Maybe they want to listen to a podcast tomorrow. Maybe they want to, you know, listen to something they haven't heard for a while. There's all of these different formats. There's satellite. Nothing killed radio. Radio expanded to meet the competition, and radio is still here. By the time I started radio, women were pretty much uh, involved, but in 1968, they weren't. That's right? very true. And they told you not even women in the... don't sound good nope. on the radio. Yep. And <laughs> what's bizarre about that is that's like if you've ever tried to get a job, get your first job, and they're like, oh, we can't hire you. You don't have experience. Okay, well, if no one will hire me, how am I supposed to get experience? When I first came to Northeastern in 1964, I was under the impression that the reason there weren't any women on the radio except doing, like, cooking shows and stuff, you know, the the reason there weren't any female DJs was maybe they hadn't applied. So I, I knew I could do what Arnie Ginsberg was doing. I just knew I could. I loved BZ. I listened to Jefferson K. He was my other cultural hero. I loved Bruce Bradley. I mean, I just, I knew. I could do what they do. Maybe Juicy not as Bruce well, but I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I just, I knew I could do it. And I just wanted a chance to learn. And I went to the station 
And I said, you know, here I am. And they said, we can't put you on the air. And I said, why not? And they said, you're a girl. I said, well, and your point is? And they said, well, girls don't sound good. I said, well, how many have you had on the air? And they said, none. They don't sound good. And that never made sense to me. So what did you do? How did you beat that brick wall? I kept coming back. Yeah. They let me do segues. They let me run the board. I ran a very good board back in the days when you had to have vinyl records yeah. and all this. I ran a really good board. A tight board. I did. I did. And I could do dynamite segues. But they wouldn't let me say anything because evidently the sound of a woman's voice would make the republic fall or something. I don't know. Yeah. But whatever it was, um, for some reason— in 1968, after I kept coming back and coming back for four years, yeah. there was a new team. And for whatever reason, and I was able to thank him years later, there was a program director at the station. It was WNEU. Um, and his name was Jim Gordon. And I don't know why, but he said, okay, we'll give you a chance. And that was like music to my ears. And on October 1st, 1968, I finally became the first woman in the history of Northeastern University to be on the radio. And again, the Republic didn't fall. Did in you fact, my show, show? my show got pretty popular. I did a folk music show. It was called Full Circle, played all kinds of good folk music, just like Jefferson Kay had done on Hoot Nanny on WBZ. And I think I played a pretty good variety. I got a lot of requests. People asked me to come back. I did. And the rest, as they say, is history. Do you have any of those tapes? I you, do. You have, you're a memorabilia person. I do. I have a couple. But unfortunately, in the mid-1990s, I was living in an apartment where there was a water main break. Uh-oh. Yeah. And I lost tons of personal stuff. And it just breaks my heart to this very day. Um, a bunch of my old tapes. I do still have a couple. You know, in fact... If you listen back to your old tapes, you're almost embarrassed because you're like, oh, my God, Tell I sounded really bad. Oh, God. But yes. at the time, I guess this is one of these, I guess you had to be there. I do still have the fan mail I, fan mail I got. I know that sounds horribly arrogant, but I have some of the fan letters I got from people who said my voice was refreshing. They were they loved my knowledge of music. And I'm like, wow, maybe I can do this. Unfortunately, after I graduated... It took me another three years before I was able to get a station to let me be on the air. Were and you that, trying the whole three years? Yeah, I was trying and trying. I was teaching. I was teaching in the Boston public schools, but my heart was in radio. And as soon as I got a chance to go do radio full time, I walked away from tenure. I could have been a tenured teacher in the Boston public schools, but it wasn't where my heart was. It wasn't terrible. It just wasn't for me. And I knew I had to follow my dream, and that took me to Cleveland. You uh, knew your, what your dream was pretty early on. And yes, I did. I talked to, and you probably talked to a lot of young folks today who have no idea about what they want to do. That's very true. But I think that sometimes if something just speaks to you, you got to go for it, okay? My parents never understood why I loved radio. I'll be honest with you. But my mother gave me very practical advice. She said, you know, follow your dream, but also, like, make sure you've got some education and something you can make a living at. Yeah. So I got a degree in teaching because, let's be honest, back then that was one of the few jobs that any time they would hire women. Yeah. Okay? It wasn't what I wanted, but I was good at it. I could have kept on doing it. Now, I know what some people are thinking. They're like, but Donna, you're a professor. No, that's different. 
This was like high school English and stuff like yeah. that. No, very different. And yeah, I followed my dream doing freelance writing. I started writing for Billboard magazine. I wrote, I, I was a freelance writer for the ABC radio network. I wrote a history of rock and roll for them called Retro Rock. And again, it was all behind the scenes. They wouldn't let me on the air because who knows what might have happened. Um, but finally... In 1973, I got a job in Cambridge at a small station called WCAS, yeah. and I was teaching in the morning in the Boston Public Schools, and then after school, I'd go over and do my air shift in, uh, at WCAS, and that was a lot of fun, and ultimately, that led me to get a job in Cleveland and go into radio full-time. Well, let's not stop there. You get to Cleveland. I do. How did you get that gig in Cleveland when all others said no? Well, it was totally accidental. Um, there was a guy named John Gorman who was the program director of WMMS in Cleveland, but he was from Greater Boston, and he was back in Boston visiting his relatives, and he heard me on WCAS, and he liked what he heard, and he hired me sight unseen. There was no interview. that He just he heard me on the air, said, this one, and I so ended he, up in Cleveland. You had applied... But he had heard you on the air before that? I never applied. Oh, he heard Does, you and he called you heard, up. Absolutely. That's big time. Yes, it is. And <laughs> that's the way things happened, but usually that's the way they happened for guys. And in this particular case, it happened for me. And so I ended up in October of 1973 going out to WMMS in Cleveland. And that began my radio career, which ended up lasting more than three decades. 73 was a sweet time to be on the radio. It really was. But it was hard for me being on WMMS. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, I'd never been away from home before, okay? And I think that the people at the station were expecting, let me say, a hippie chick, okay? Because I was playing album rock and, you know, I have a still have a pretty nice voice, I think. If I'm not being arrogant, I just think, Thank God I still have a good voice. Um, and so I was, you know, I sounded good on the radio. And I think they expected that I'd be part of that rock and roll lifestyle. And people that know me know that I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I do remember the 60s. I've never even tried any of those things because, not, not for any religious reason or anything like that, just because when you're the first, there's a lot of people that would like to see you fail. There's a lot of people that would like to be able to say, wow, she made a jerk out of herself. Yep. So I just didn't ever want to give them the satisfaction. So you knew there was a lot riding on oh, what you yeah, were doing. absolutely. And I knew that people were going to stand on my shoulders at some point and say, wow, you know, I heard Donna and I decided I just like I had heard this one or that one. So I wanted to be the good role model. I don't know if I was, but I tried. Okay. Did you have difficulty assimilating because of that? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, very much so. Um, in fact, what helped me was discovering Rush. Oh, I was going to save that, but that's yeah. okay. But it occurs to me that Rush, personality-wise, those guys, at least one or two of them, are a lot like you are. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChambaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Fire. Much more than many people in many bands. And that may be why you had an affinity for them or why you kind of, they seem, you know, mathematical and intense. They're not, they're not hippies. They're not doing a lot of drugs. They're kind of like you. Well, actually, they did their share, but they never did anything hard, okay? They're basically family men, all right? What I noticed about them right from Jump Street was that they were very accepting and very loyal to their friends. And when we became friends, which we still are more than 40 years later, I still keep in touch with them. Um, When we became friends, I found, to my great delight, that they had a lot of space for me to be a non-smoker, non-drinker. Not, it was fine with them. Yeah. It didn't bother them in the right. least. I mean, they did a number of things. Um, they were still young. They weren't married. They didn't have kids. They still partied. But they were fine if I didn't. And they also would keep it away from me, not because I asked them to, but they just got that I'd be much more comfortable if we could just go out to eat or go to a ball game or, you know, this right. and that. So we always were just friends. And even when they became famous, success never spoiled them. They never got into the whole, you know, don't you know who I am thing. And they always treated me courteously. 73. Was that early on in their career or was that I didn't discover the band until 74. Okay. Okay. The spring of 74 when a friend of mine from Canada sent me a copy of this homegrown album. And I put on the cut Working Man, and I knew immediately that it was a perfect record for Cleveland. I've always been a lyrics person all my life. Okay, my, my own personal tastes in music are very eclectic. I'm sure yours are as well. I've worked as a DJ at a jazz station. I've done rock. I've done country. I've done blues. I mean, you name it. It's all music. I've done top 40. But if a song has good lyrics... That's what really matters to me. And I thought Working Man was just perfect for Cleveland because it was a factory town. And I brought it down to the DJ. His name was Denny Sanders. He played it. The phones lit up like a Christmas tree. And the rest, as they say, is history. But I never, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, this is what is special about Rush, okay? And whether some of you are listening and you're like, I'm not a fan of that band. That's fine. But you know what? As you go through life, you meet some good people, and these are just good people. And the reason I know this is after I discovered them, after I helped them get airplay, after I helped them get a U.S. recording contract, which I did not do alone. I was one of a bunch of people who recommended them. Um, they kept in touch. They didn't have to do that. I was a music director. I was right. doing what music directors do. But they kept in touch. And they've kept in touch for, oh, my God, 45 years. <laughs> okay? And these are the kind of people they are. So when I run into people that are just loyal and compassionate and that care about other people and don't just look at things like, oh, how does this benefit me? That's very special because I met a lot of people in the music industry that they couldn't have cared less about anyone. As long as you played their record, that was fine, and that was the end of the transaction. And then there are other people. Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen is one of the nicest people I ever met. He is down to earth. He is sincere. He is a caring human being. Sometimes, really, what you see 
is what you get. And it's kind of nice to know that those people are out there because all you hear about, let's be honest, you hear about the rock stars that trash the hotel rooms and the rock stars that are in rehab, excuse me, that are in rehab for the 90th time and this and that. You don't hear about the people that just go about their business, do their job, do an incredible show, care about their family. I'm very privileged to have met some people like that. Neil Pritt's wife died and he went on a long and grueling motorcycle journey. And he wrote a book about it, which you probably know about. Yes, he did. And he also lost his daughter. Um, he lost his wife and his daughter within a very short period of time, and he sank into a deep depression. And if you've seen the movie Beyond the Lighted Stage, which is a very good documentary, not just because I'm in it, but it's just a very good documentary. Um, the guys in Rush, when Neil left, they were like, well, why don't you just audition new drummers? And Getty said, uh-uh, if there's no Neil, there's no Rush. And they waited for him. And ultimately, he came back, and ultimately, he remarried. He has a wonderful daughter, very nice relationship, lives out in California, just the nicest people. I'm happy for him. His life turned out okay. And he's perhaps the best rock drummer ever. You did, and I'm jumping because of the time, you did a history of Boston radio. I did. And what what can you tell me about that? Well, that also was a labor of love. We're a very throwaway, very forgetful culture. And what my life is about in a lot of ways is saying thank you. Now, I know that sounds silly, but I'm very serious about it. I mean, I got a thank you note from a student a couple of weeks ago. I'm like, wow, I've taken tons of students out to lunch. I've gotten very few thank you notes, okay? Um, So what I like to try to do if someone has contributed to my life is I want to thank them. And the people I grew up listening to they saved my life. They helped keep me sane. Last night a DJ saved my life. Absolutely. So I wanted to make sure that they were remembered, and I went looking to find out, like, who had been on before me that, you know, what women were on before me. Nothing. Couldn't find a thing. So I decided that I would research that. And then I looked around for, like, the history of Boston radio. Uh, a few blogs here and there, some websites. But I thought, gee, wouldn't it be good to have a one volume of just like great pictures and recollections. To this day, I wrote the book in uh, 2010, 2011, it came out. To this day, when I go out and do speaking engagements, people still ask me about that book. They love the pictures. They love the recollections. People remember who they listened to when they were growing up. Radio is still such a powerful medium for a lot of people. I hope we never lose that. So, yeah, I wrote this book about Boston Radio. I've written a book about women in broadcasting, which came out in a second edition. I've written a bunch of articles, a bunch of essays. I'm going to keep on telling the stories of the people that have contributed to us, and it's my pleasure to do so. You have written other books, and they're they're diverse topics. Yes, indeed. And I even write about baseball. I've written, I am a member of the Society of American Baseball Researchers. Uh, I gave a talk at Cooperstown last year about women baseball writers. Um, Some of the early women baseball writers, including some African-American women baseball writers. I'm working on a part two of that one. Um, I write entries for encyclopedias. Um, The other book that I'm the most proud of is called Invisible Stars, A Social History of Women in American Broadcasting. 
which isn't just about women in broadcasting. It's about how women changed society, how society adapted to women in the public sphere, how women got into different occupations, and how attitudes changed. It's about the men who contributed and some of the men who didn't want us there, and yet there we were. So it's about the changes in society. Um, I love writing, and I love writing about media history because there's so much to be uncovered. There's so many people whose stories deserve to be told. Like I tell the story of the first woman radio announcer, Eunice Randall, and you know, her own family members were thrilled to hear her story told. So I do a lot of that. You do a lot of speaking engagements that must yeah. have taken you to interesting places. Yes. You got two or three of those you can share? Oh, my God. Um, I got to tell you, Cooperstown was really a treat. I mean, to stand among some of the, you know, to, to be with the memorabilia from the legends of baseball. To st- I'm a, I've been a fan ever since I was a kid, and I'm looking at some of these things and just thinking to myself, wow, you got a couple of hundred years worth of history here. This is amazing. Um, as a public speaker, I mean, I just got back a couple of months ago from North Carolina. I uh, was the guest DJ at a concert. Uh, There were these college professors who started a rock band called the Quadrivium Project. They all have PhDs, but they love rock and roll. And they asked me to DJ their performance. And they did a classic rock concert at the University of uh, North Carolina, North Carolina State, rather. And there I was in Raleigh up in a DJ booth announcing their songs and talking about the music. And it was just like a throwback. And then the next day, I went into some of the classes at North Carolina State and talked to some of the students about radio and about the career in broadcasting. And there are still some people that are interested, and that makes me feel good. You got any coming up that people can go to? Um, and if you I'm, don't, maybe you I'm should available. set something I up. I got my hand raised. I'm available. I speak at libraries. I speak at ham radio clubs. I speak at civ- civic organizations, churches, synagogues. You know, it's it, you want to get a hold of me, I'm always happy to come and give a talk. I love doing it. I bring my rare memorabilia. So you did, for your doctoral thesis, a piece on how radio changed society. Well, now society is getting changed real hard and real fast yeah. by social media. What what are the parallels and, what, and how is it different? Well, first of all, anytime any new medium comes along, You get two kinds of discourses, two kinds of conversations. One kind that's like, oh, my God, this is going to make everything better. And the other kind that's like, oh, my God, this is going to be the ruination of society. They said it about radio. They said it about TV. They said it about movies. I mean, it just it goes on and on. In the case of social media, though, here's what concerns me. Back in the old days when you and I were growing up, you know, when the dinosaurs came and all of that. Um, If some guy in a diner said something that was absolutely ridiculous, the only people that really heard him were his friends in the diner. Today, a guy in a diner says something absolutely ridiculous, goes on YouTube, goes on social media, goes on Facebook, goes on, uh, you know, Twitter, Instagram. Pretty soon, that ridiculous thing he said could have thousands and thousands and thousands of people paying attention to it. It's a real problem because there are many people today who cannot tell the difference between opinion and fact, and they are very different. It used to be that a person with a microphone 
usually you were vetted. You had to go through certain procedures. People Absolutely. know that you know what you're talking about. Now, yep. if you read something on social media, you don't know whether it's just the crazy guy in the diner, diner speaking or whether it's somebody that knows what they're talking about. And they're all treated equally and believed yep. equally. And yep, and people don't fact check. People seek out. There's something we teach about called confirmation bias. People seek out those views that reinforce what they already believe. So if you think Trump is the worst president ever, you're going to seek out views that agree with you. If you think Trump is the best president ever, you're going to seek out views that agree with you. When we were growing up, it was possible to first hear the facts and then hear all the interpretations and this and that. Today, a lot of people completely bypass the facts and go straight for the interpretations. And that's really problematic because this is how you get all kinds of fake quotes out there. This is how you get all kinds of stories that never really happened, things that were never really said. And thousands of people believe that they were because somebody sent it to them. And then thousands of people vote based on incorrect yep, information. Absolutely. So, that really worries me. Okay, now let's get to the icing, the dessert, the memorabilia. You're bringing out ice cream? Oh, well, I like you yes. have what is said to be the premier collection of radio memorabilia in all the land. Yeah, well, historic. And you brought some stuff. Yep, Historic New England, uh, which is a wonderful organization. They maintain a lot of museums, house museums, libraries, etc. They just gave me the ninth annual collector's prize for works on paper for the biggest collection of memorabilia related to the history of broadcasting. And I was really, really honored about that. I brought with me some stuff which I can scan and, you know, put up on anybody's uh, website if they want to see it. It's also on a number of my own websites. So you can describe it in minute living color detail. I I'm can. Sure. It's true. I have old surveys. Like if you were listening to WBZ, in 1966, I was showing Bradley, you know, here's what the hit songs were. I've got stuff that goes back to the 1880s and 1890s. It helps me to tell the story of the industry. So the and I preserve card, it. You know, you could look at it digitally. It's yeah. not the same no. thing. No. So these survey cards, how would they be compiled and where would they be disseminated? Now, when I was a music director, one of the things I would do back in the old days was call the stores because there used to be a lot of stores. This is the era before Amazon. It wasn't that long ago. Um, the stores would compile how many records they sold. Uh, we would also base it on requests. We would also base it on um, other factors, including what the record promoters were telling us about how much they were selling nationwide. Now, agreed, the record promoters were not always the most accurate information, but they weren't our only resource. And some of them were great. Some of them really did give us some really honest information. But like I said, it was mainly local, like we'd call the record stores. Back when there were a lot of record stores locally, some of you may remember Skippy White. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Some of you may remember Oldies But Goodies Land. Uh, Leechmere had a record department. Jordan Marsh had a record department. Craze. We'd call all of them. And every week we'd compile what was selling. And then we'd come up with a survey. And we also absolutely would factor in requests. So there were a lot of local hits. Like you may remember a song by Orpheus called Can't Find the Time to Tell You. I, yeah. 
didn't yes. become a hit anywhere except in about three cities, and Boston was one of them. So we totally looked at local. Aerosmith, Dream On, big local hit. It ultimately broke out of Cleveland a second time around and became a national hit. But yeah, it was a lot of fun seeing what was selling in Boston and what people were requesting. So yeah, that's how we would compile the surveys, and we would disseminate them at events, We would disseminate them by mail if people would write in and ask us and close a self-addressed stamped envelope and we'll send you a copy of the survey. And a lot of them, thankfully, have survived. And I have some of them in my collection and I will make sure they survive. Little nod to a Boston, little known record store that DJs used to go to. You may have gone to it. Nubian Notion. Yes. Nubian Notion in Dudley. Yes. Was where... You would go to get the secret records that didn't even have, all they had was like a number written on yep. them or something like yep. that. Test pressings yeah. and all. That's like, the and stuff bootlegs. DJs and die for. bootlegs. And Nubian Notion. Yes. And we used to also get imports because back in those days, before a record came out in the States, it often came out first in Canada or first in England. Yeah. And they'd come in by boat and we'd get out and get them. God, it was great. It I was had to come to being a super UK snob. Bands would come out on this big, heavy, beautiful import. And then I kind of lose interest when I'd see them on a domestic uh, Mm -hmm. label. I don't know, it's probably a a bias in my part. Maybe it was recorded differently. It was also a time when music really made a difference. Like I remember when Ohio came out, Four Dead in Ohio, about, yeah. And I remember like waiting for that record to come out and wanting to be like the first to play it. And my college station was among the first to play it. And people heard that song and it, told the story of what had happened at Kent State, and it really resonated with people. Radio made a difference in so many people's lives back then. I want to make sure you have a, plenty of time for your big goodbye. Oh. First, if there's a book that you wanted them to have, a couple of them, would you, would you recommend that listeners pick up books of yours? Truthfully, I'm perfectly happy if they get a copy of Boston Radio, which is uh, Arcadia, Boston Radio, 1920 to 2010. And I'm also really happy if they get a copy of Invisible Stars, A Social History of Women in American Broadcasting. That's uh, put out by uh, Emmy Sharp, 2014. But also, if you just Google me, You'll find that I write a ton of articles on a wide range of subjects, whether it's baseball, whether it's black history, women's history, Jewish history, the history of broadcasting. There are so many stories I want to tell. And Bradley, I am so appreciative that you let me come on your show to tell some of these stories. The pleasure is mine. And you you could probably notice that Donna is a great speaker and available probably for your organization. Thanks, Donna. Absolutely. Thank you. WBZ. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.